Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. I'm working on a series of stories from Antarctica at the moment. So this week, to set the scene, I thought we would pull out a couple of stories from Our Changing World's icy archives. My most recent visit to the frozen continent at the end of last year was courtesy of Antarctica New Zealand. It was my second time down there. The first time was the end of 2010, and I thought we would revisit a couple of places that I didn't get to last year. First up, let's head to Cape Royds on Ross Island. This is the base associated with Sir Ernest Shackleton's British Antarctic Nimrod expedition, which ran from 1907 to 1909. It's one of five historic huts in the Ross Sea region that the Antarctic Heritage Trust has restored over the past 14 years. Back in 2010, Al Fastia and the team were hard at work on the Nimrod hut. We're at Cape Royds. That's a fantastic spot. Shackleton did a fantastic job in selecting the site out the front here. We've got the world's most southern Adelie penguin colony. And further on, past that, we've got the Transantarctic Mountains um, looking over the uh, Ross Sea. And behind, um, we've got Mount Erebus, another great view. And tucked down here, um, we're in a bit of a hollow, and um, we're camping over the other side, and it can be very windy, um, but you come down where the hut is located, and it can be very calm and very quiet. So a perfect selection for a hut site. And it does sound a little bit like a central city um, construction site at the moment, so can you explain that to me, what's going on? Yeah, that's that's true. uh, Typically you come here, it's very quiet, and and the place has got a wonderful feeling and a a true spirit of place. But at the moment it is is like an industrial work site, and we're doing two main things here at the moment. We're putting a waterproof dam around the hut, um, and that's to stop the meltwater from flowing under and uh, freezing and building up. And there's uh, about 200 millimetres of ice under the hut. And um, once, once we've got the dam in, we plan to remove the ice. And that's, that's for, for two reasons. One is to stop any damage to the subfloor, but also to reduce the relative humidity within the hut. It's interesting that on the driest continent on the world, humidity is your biggest challenge. It is. As you can see around the site at the moment, we've got... Uh, there's a lot of ice fr- being thrown yeah, around. <laughs> we've got flowing water, and it's not too far out... Uh, 
probably only 200 metres, metres away we've got sea ice and uh, within the next two or three weeks that will have been um, blown out by, by a southerly storm and we'll have open water in front of the, uh, the building. So, um, yeah, no, humidity is a big problem and it can be up to levels such as 80% um, during the peak of the summer. So we've come round the corner, not to the sound of the jackhammer that was going before, but to the sound of shovelling. My name's Jamie Clark and I'm the Sir Peter Blake Trust Antarctic Youth Ambassador. John Taylor and I'm seconded from Department of Conservation for the three-month summer season. So what are you two working at today? Well, uh, ice removal today. We've been, the last couple of days, we've been uh, digging these trenches around the side of the hut that you see here. And uh, this is our first day on ice removal from under the hut. So is it easy to get the ice out? Um, the ice breaks away quite readily. I certainly like putting those uh, trenches in around the side. It's just uh, permafrost, uh, scoria and rock, and that is extremely slow going. Uh, what we've seen of this stuff, it breaks away quite easy, but it's just the awkwardness of working in the confined space and then having to um, drag it all back out. So breaking it off um, doesn't look too difficult, but um, we don't want to speak too <laughs> soon. <laughs> We've only been on it for half an hour and we're just sort of feeling our way at the moment, so yeah. My name's Randy Churchill. I'm based uh, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And what's your job here? Uh, I'm, I'm here as a conservation carpenter. So. And what are you working on at the moment? Uh, at the moment here, we're putting on a new polycarbonate water shield on the east side of Shackleton's hut. And this shield is uh, 600 mil tall, stretches above ground level a little bit and stretches way down into the permafrost. And the purpose is to keep the water that does melt on the surface from entering into the hut. It gets attached to the hut by a, a wooden cleat on top that also has a foam moisture barrier so that water on the wall and snow that melts doesn't get down behind it. I'm Martin, uh, I'm from Wellington and I'm a furniture restorer by trade and uh, have been involved with the project since three seasons now and uh, basically uh, working on conserving those those boxes here, the food boxes in front of us. So these boxes are food boxes, you say? Yeah, well, I mean, they are basically provision boxes that they use to take anything from, from engine oil to maize to flour to candles. I mean, all their, their stores were basically packed in reasonably easy-to-carry boxes. But what's interesting, what they did here is that were the stables and that, would you believe, over there was in a, a garage for the first motor car in, uh, in Antarctica. And so they decided that those boxes would make really good bricks to to build those walls. So the boxes, some of them look like they're really disintegrating. Mm. Most of them are, are basically frozen to a solid block, and we we usually look at look at them and and give them a grading here between one and five. Uh, five being being something like that. That is, uh, I mean, it's really not much left of a box. So and it's just a few scraps of wood. Yeah. How long is it taking to get each box out? Well, it's it's quite a quite different. I mean, we had boxes on here, and it takes basically a minute to lift it up and take it over there to process. But on this last box that uh, Diana is just working on there, I probably worked uh, for for three hours. Now heading over to Diana, who's about 10 metres away. Can I get you to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Diana Comian, and I'm from Pembroke, Ontario, Canada. 
And what's your speciality? What's brought you down here? Uh, I'm an objects conservator, so I've treated a vast variety of uh, artefacts. And what's the challenge you've got on your hands right now? Uh, This is a box that Martin just uh, uncovered, and I'm trying to remove the loose debris that was around it. It's mostly scoria and... uh, ice, really. So um, I'm trying to remove as much of that as I possibly can, and then I'm going to wrap it up and so that it's packaged for transport to Scott Base. And what's the state of that box? The wood's in surprisingly good condition, and Martin can work wonders with this. So um, he'll reconstruct this box uh, this winter, and the contents, as much as possible, will be maintained and put back into the box. What's so in this box, do you know? Well, I saw something that said corn, but it must be corn flour, and it looks like I saw some regular white flour as well. So what's in it are these cans of cornmeal and flour, it looks like. So you've got it sitting on a board, and when you say you're going to package it up, what do you wrap it up with? Uh, We're we're using actually just this uh, cling wrap, this stretch wrap, for just holding everything together on this sheet of plywood. I'm Cricket Harbeck, and I'm an objects conservator from the United States. And we are working through um, old caches of food. What we're doing is uh, packaging them up and putting them in these modern wood boxes for storage. So what have you got in front of you at the moment? And what state are the boiled mutton tins in? They vary greatly. Some of them are pretty much intact with minor corrosion. Uh, Some of them, like... This one over here is is already, you know, the seal is already punctured and and it's leaking out. And so we have a mixed bag of things. And object conservation, is that a science or an art? It's a little bit of each. (laughs) You actually need both a science uh, background and an art history background to get into the conservation programs. So it, it sort of marries all the fields. So what kind of things from a scientific point of view do you have to consider? You know, with... Items like these food tins, uh, you know, there's the metal itself, so it's the deterioration of the metal, the lacquer coatings, the painted coatings, the paper labels, uh, the printed ink on the label. And to do treatment on them, you have to consider all of those and how they react, you know, to solvents and, you know, the materials that we use for conservation as well as understanding how they're deteriorating from the environment, whether it's the humidity, the salt from the sea, or the food contents itself. Uh, as well as the interaction of the materials, how the iron corrosion is affecting the paper label, such things like that. So it can be pretty complex. And I assume, too, that you're trying not to do anything that's undoable? Right, that's one of the tenets of conservation is reversibility, but in some instances that's just not practical or, you know, feasible. But um, that's definitely something we consider. When we start using adhesives, all of those adhesives are chemically stable and reversible, have good aging properties, things like that. So that's definitely something that's considered. Before you go in the hut, to make sure your feet are clean. I'm Lizzie Meek, and I'm the Program Manager Artifacts for the Antarctic Heritage Trust. So as we look around the hut here, the shelves are all stocked, but really they're restocked, aren't they, because you've done work on everything that's inside the hut? The vast majority of artefacts in, inside the hut 
have had some kind of treatment, not everything, but a lot of them. And some of the objects that you can see were originally outside the hut. There were a lot of deteriorating food stores that were blowing around the site. So some of those have been brought inside. Can you tell me a little bit more about artefact conservation and what's involved in that? Just looking at the bigger picture, the best thing we can do for the artefacts is make sure that the structure they're in is sound. And so the biggest improvement is having no snow um, inside this building and having a a much um, or a lower humidity, so less ice. Artefact conservation down here, a lot of it is trying to deal with the fact that we're putting objects back into an uncontrolled environment. So looking at the fact that we know the humidity in the summer months in here is quite high. So trying to provide some protection to the metal from that humidity. It's quite an interesting mix here, really, because there's a lot of there's a lot of history, a lot of what some people might call dirt, <laughs> that we want to retain for various reasons. We want to keep things um, looking old. We don't want to shine them up and make them all new. Um, so, so finding that balance between removing the deterioration and putting a buffer in against future deterioration, without sort of completely destroying the historical integrity of the object, that's the challenge for us. Can you paint a picture for us about what it was like in this hut with 15 men in it? I mean, it's one thing to stand in here with just a couple of people and it's a, a quiet, echoey space, but it must have been quite different when Shackleton and his men were here. I often think about that, actually. I think you would have walked through that door and into this kind of intense fog, really, of, of heat, light, um, tobacco smoke, a, a lot of interesting smells from the cooking on the stove through to things being repaired and the smell of unwashed uh, chaps, <laughs> basically. What's your time frame for finishing with this hut and shutting the door and walking away from it? Uh, this time next year, I, um, I hope to be able to shut the door and, um, and walk away. And uh, if we've done a great job, which I feel confident that we will, no one will even know that we've been here. So we sort of come and just slip and dust our way out backwards. Quite often we do work and people come and say, now, what have you been doing here all summer? And, um, and the fact that they can't tell is a great success uh, for me because you know, we know that we've done it and done it in such a way they can't tell. Thanks, Al. Al Fastier is with the Antarctic Heritage Trust. We also heard from Lizzie Meeks, Martin Wenzel, Randy Churchill, Diana Comajan and Cricket Harbeck. That story first aired in 2011. Kate Fakaronga mai koe ki tō tato ao horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now, our second dive into the Our Changing World's Antarctic Archive takes us nearly to the top of Mount Erebus, the world's most southern active volcano. Microbial ecologist and discoverer Craig Carey from Waikato University has been working for many years in the unusual thermal environments up there. We're heading down to a cave. I'm going to take you into one of the the local caves here. This is a pretty extensive geothermal area. So we have a lot of chimneys, as you can see off of here, these these ice chimneys that form above the fumaroles. So there's a, a steam vent and the steam condenses form in these large chimneys. But also surrounding them and underneath these chimneys are large caves. And uh, the, the one that's closest to Lower Erebus Hut is called Hut Cave. And it actually happens to be one of the most spectacular ones that's around the mountain. And so I thought I'd take you down there and show you what's 
we call the Blue Dome Room. Looking forward to it. So we're on this almost near the summit of Mount Erebus. What height are we at? Uh, we're at 3,400 right here, 3,400 meters, and uh, it's about another, oh, maybe four and a half, 500 meters up to uh, the summit. Up onto that active lava lake. Yep, yeah, we were up there three days ago. We've actually placed temperature monitoring equipment all over the mountain, and we hope to create a three-dimensional sort of model of how temperature radiates out from the side of the volcano because where it's warm there's life and where there's life that's what we're interested in because this seems like the last place on earth you'd find life yeah yeah that's true and in fact uh for the most part there's not much up here yeah. but areas where there's it's warm and what i mean by warm is that on tramway ridge which is on the other side of the volcano from here the ground temperatures are about 65 degrees celsius so they're really warm to the touch these fumaroles, on the other hand, are much uh, cooler. They're around maybe 10 to 20 degrees Celsius. Um, but still, when you get out of the wind, you're going to think it's really nice down there. So what's the um, outside temperature here today? Any idea? Probably about, right now we're running about minus 20. Uh, last night in our tent, it was minus 30. So we gotta go, we're going to go over here. And we pop around the side of this fumarole, and there's a hole. Now, I think I'm going to go in first, okay. okay? And what I'm going to ask you to do is to hand the gear down to me. Yep. And then I'm going to ask you to get yourself down, okay? Cool. So just take your time. Slowly watch your feet one at a time coming down, okay? Wow. <laughs> yeah, so what we have here is, is, is the caves are formed by warm air that's coming out of a, a, a fissure that's down farther in the cave. And it kind of just seeps its way up. And then this is a snowdrift that's been basically etched away by the steam. And what you're seeing here is this beautiful blue dome that is basically created by the, the diffuse light passing through maybe oh, half a meter of snow above or ice above. So it's ice and snow, and you're getting this beautiful blue glow. It's magical. So tell me a bit about the work you've been doing. Yeah, so um, we're interested in uh, looking at the microbial life, the bacteria that live on Mount Erebus. Mount Erebus is about uh, uh, a million years old, but the, this upper part of the volcano is thought to be around about 100,000 years old. And obviously, when you see hot soil, that's, manifest, that's a manifestation of the heat that's inside the volcano making its way to the surface, melting the snow. And so what we have is a conduit to the interior of the volcano. And so what we're really interested in is to look at the microbial life that's sort of maybe representative of the deep subsurface biosphere that might be in the volcano. And this is, of course, the southernmost isolated geothermal soil on the planet. And so and it's been isolated for millions of years. And so our, our interest is to look at hot soils in New Zealand and hot soils in the United States and hot soils here in Antarctica and can start to begin to compare them because these guys have been off on their own for a while and see what adaptations they have evolved to uh, survive in these very unique environments. My first question is, it's, they're so isolated. How have the microbes got here? 
Well, I mean, for one thing, the continent was attached to South America about 30 million years ago and broke away and then kind of drifted to the south and became cold. Of course, they got trapped. And, and, and they're under their own selection here. So, they, I mean, they're surrounded by thousands of kilometers of ice, and uh, there's very little way of things getting in except from the air. So there could be some things coming in from the air. But what we found so far is that the tramway ridge bacteria are very unique, unlike anything we've seen anywhere else on the planet. So that's very exciting to us. How are you going about identifying the bacteria and the microbes that you've got up here? What's, what's the process you're using? Oh, so we're, we're using two different methods. One is a DNA-based based method, so a genetic method, where we take the, uh, the DNA from the soil, chop it up into a lot of little bits, and uh, examine it and try to piece it back together again. That's maybe the part of the modern approach to microbial ecology is, is to do it genetically. But we're also trying to culture them. In fact, the big effort that was up here... Uh, this time was to uh, try to culture some of these really unique guys. Two of the guys who um, are in the thermophile research unit at Waikato actually came up here about 15 years ago and did some provisional work. And it was that provisional work that actually led to the discovery of a very unique um, enzyme that is now commercially available and being ex- being used uh, globally for forensic work. So it's uh, there's a lot to be had up here. We, we're just now just beginning to crack the nut. Talk me through how you've been doing your sampling. We're looking for hot soil. So we probe around with a temperature probe, looking for the hot soil. And uh, right over here, you can see this orange peg right over here. And that's actually some of the warmest soil in this cave. That's about 8 degrees Celsius right there. Now, that's not very warm um, compared to tramway, but it's warm down here. So um, and what we're really interested in looking at is to see how the temperature fluctuations that we see here in this cave, which is 500 meters below the summit, compared to tramway ridge and compared to the summit itself. So every one of these temperature pegs, and there's 25 of them now around the volcano, we've got soil samples, and we'll, we'll get, we're going to do a genetic mapping of those soil samples, and then we can place that on top of the temperature regimes, and so that gives us a, a really good idea of what the biodiversity is on the volcano. Are you expecting a cool cave like this to be quite different in its community structure than the hotter tramway ridge Absolutely. Side? Yep, yep. No, for sure. And this is, again, a pretty sustained temperature down here. I don't think it's going to fluctuate very much. Uh, but tramway ridge, 65 degrees all year round, wintertime. It can be minus 60 air temperature, but the soil temperature is 65 degrees Celsius. So that's a that's a really exciting thing for us because if it was going up and down, we'd have a problem because you know because that bacteria would be not able to survive those massive changes in temperature. But tramway ridge is very stable. You've got ongoing work here, so this is a multi-year project. Uh, yep, this this is our second season up here, and so what we're trying to do is to do a stepping stone approach. Uh, so we're going to go to Mount Ritman, Mount Melbourne, and then we're going to jump over to Deception Island, which is one of the, the sub-Antarctic islands. It's also geothermal, and then on to South America. So we're kind of walking our way up the peninsula to try to see what the biogeography of the geothermal uh, microbial bacteria are. When you talk about the diversity of these communities, can you put numbers on that? Well, the beauty of the genetic data using DNA and understanding all the genes that these guys have is that we can take a look at these genes and say, hey, look, there's a, there's a pathway here, a genetic capability for utilizing, say, iron. So then we can develop a media that's specific for that. 
and then try to go back in and see if we can pull out just those guys that you have that pathway. So this enables us to, use, using the genetic data, to kind of narrow it down. But what we found here is when the first guys came up here and cultured, cultured there's two or three things they found that we have found genetically to be in minor abundance in here, very low abundance. The big guys, they missed totally because, because they didn't know how to grow them. Genetically, of course, we don't use growth for that. Genetically, we can go in and say, and we, we've profiled the system, and it's very diverse and contains some very unique bacteria. You know, if you get up here, you can see a, there's a little collapse right over here. So you can keep going, but it's a belly crawl. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit of a belly crawl. <laughs> and these ones are quite small on the scale of your cave. This one is is uh, reasonably small. I would say this is a medium to small size cave. The largest cave, which is across the road, is about uh, five times, six times this size. You notice the temperature difference down yeah. here? Yeah. It's, it's kind of comfortable, <laughs> it's isn't very it? Co- in fact, I'm a bit too comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, wait till you stick your head out. <laughs> but here, down here, it's, it's cold. I mean, this is solid ice above your head, probably about five meters of it thick. But there's this warm air that's coming up, which has created the cave. And so that the mixture of those two brings it down to about zero here, which is very comfortable for Mount Erebus. But it adds to that surrealness of it. Oh, yeah, this is... A real world of contrasts up here. (laughs) Totally. And you come down here as a microbiologist, and you just go, oh, oh, let's take a sample here. Let's take a sample here. We'll grab this one here. And so you're going around, and we were only going to take one sample down here before, and uh, we actually ended up taking about 11 samples down here. You never know what you're going to find. We're kind of microbial treasure hunters, you know? (laughs) Now, there are a group of organisms that utilize light. They fix carbon like plants do. These are called phototrophic bacteria. And in a blue dome like this, the only light that's made available to them is blue light. And so one of the things we're interested in is to look to see whether or not the blue light is actually selecting for bacteria that can utilize blue light. And it sounds like that would be a natural, but no one's ever looked at that in terms of a cave environment before. And so there are certain pigments that are very blue light sensitive and that enable the bacteria to photosynthesize basically with blue light. And we're going to be using, we use genetics again to go in and see if we can fish that out of the system. You come up to answer one question and you find a whole lot more. <laughs> that, that's, that's what's so exciting about science. The beauty of Antarctica from a microbiological standpoint is that there really hasn't been a, a lot of work done. Sort of the new frontier. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, what, what, what I'm often asked is what's the benefit of doing this type of microbiology? And I think that, that any time that you look at bacteria that live in extreme environments who these bacteria have had to adapt to very unusual conditions that in, in, in adapting to that, they have evolved very specific and uh, unique mechanisms to deal with these, these extreme environments. And some of those we can basically borrow um, from them in a, in a genetic way. We can borrow from them and utilize for various um, processes that are important to, to us. Enzymes, for instance, like um, everybody uses detergent in washing clothes, and there are enzymes that the, the companies put in there to help you clean your clothes. Well, enzymes have optimal temperatures that they work at. And so 
um, we, we, and if you can find one of these that works at say at 65 degrees, but it works much more effectively at 65 degrees than the one that works at 37, then that can help clean your clothes. And there's you know many many pharmaceuticals, um, paper production. There's a lot of commercial applications of where we can borrow enzymes that are currently from bacteria that are found in Tramway Ridge that we could then apply and use in a commercial standpoint to help us in in our own uh, existence. It's great to know that there is still opportunity for basic science, but it's also kind of cool to think that maybe one day when I'm out there in my my laundry doing my washing, (laughs) there might be some connection back here to Mount Erebus. That's the exciting part of it is that is that connection. And it's exciting for us as well. My goals are not that application. However, in the background, we always talk about that. That's part of who we are because, I mean, science has to move along. And you want science to move in a progression where it actually leads to a benefit. And I think that what we're doing here in, in opening up this, this treasure box of genetic adaptation here that we're, um, there's going to be many, many people out there, and we're hoping that we'll be interested in the information that we, we discover. Thanks, Craig. Craig Carey is from Waikato University, and that story first aired in 2011. I'll be back next week with a brand new series, Voices from Antarctica, which is about living in and doing science in Antarctica. In the meantime, if you would like to find more stories from the frozen continent, just head to the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Click the Collections tab or scroll down to the bottom of the page where you'll find a link to the Our Changing World in Antarctica collection. If you'd like to get in touch, we are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science and you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.